Let us pray. Father, speak to us in ways that we will understand, so that we will grow in the likeness of Christ and be your servants and witnesses in this place and throughout this world. In Jesus' name, amen. We continue our series looking at the life of David, and today we look at the story of David and Bathsheba, and we'll be looking at it from 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. But it was wartime. It was a time in the year whenever kings went to war. It was spring. The roads had dried up from the rainy season. There was enough grain to feed the armies as they would go. It was wartime. Everyone had made their battle lines. They were approaching them, and they were ready to fight. But we read at the start of chapter 11, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, a lot has been made about David staying in Jerusalem, that this was what brought on what we're to find out happens in the rest of the chapter. If he had been a true king and gone to the front line and fought the battle, well, it wouldn't have happened. But it's not uncommon. Indeed, in Scripture, it's not uncommon for the king to stay, let the battle or the war get warmed up a little, and then go and take command as things are nearing the end. And these are the final stages of Israel's war with the Ammonites. And we find out in chapter 12 that it comes to completion. But it is wartime. The army is out. David stays in Jerusalem. And while in Jerusalem, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came into him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. David spies Bathsheba, and David wants her. And David sends for her, for her, and she comes willingly. And what does David do? David falls into sin, adultery. Her husband is nowhere around, so David takes advantage of the situation. Uriah is at war. David thinks he's in control, and he takes the advantage. And the fling seems to be going okay until word comes that Bathsheba is pregnant. I don't know if you can imagine as David receives this news, the cogs in his brain starting to go round and round as he processes what he is hearing. The king of Israel, adultery, the king's child to someone who is not his wife. Here we have God's chosen king, the man after God's own heart, and how suddenly he falls. Our first warning. David, we recognize him and we've been looking at him, at the character that he had in being chosen by God, coming and fighting Goliath. Yes, his wilderness years of the lessons that he learned about who God was and how God received him back, but 
Now, again, he slips and he falls. You would think he had learned his lessons. You would think that he would understand who God is and he would live his life in a way that was pleasing to him. The fall of David in this circumstance is a warning to us all. Robert Robinson wrote a hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Uh, The words are, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And then later on in the verse, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to fall away. Prone to, to leave the God that we claim. Robert Robinson was converted under George Whitfield in 1752. He became a Baptist pastor in Cambridge, but as the years went on, he had slipped back into favorable habits. He was reminded of his own hymn while he was on a stagecoach journey. And the woman that was traveling with him, a complete stranger, was going over this hymn and said how wonderful it was and how it had challenged and changed her. And he had a breakdown. He himself broke down in pain and anguish, saying, that is, I, uh, he said, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who composed that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had then now to enjoy the feelings I had then. The hymn writer who wrote these great words, these truths, that Christ, our fount of every blessing, he wrote the truth, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. He knew it, he knew it was coming, but yet he let it happen and fell into the ways of sin. It happens to each of us. As we go on this journey of life that we have with our Savior, we slip, we tumble, we fall, just like David, God's chosen king, the man after God's own heart. And we should not detach ourselves as New Testament people thinking, well, that can never happen to me. That was Old Testament. That was David. No, it can and will happen. We are not immune to a fall like David's. As we go on in the story, David shows the depths of his character. He's now trying to cover up his tricks He has heard that she is pregnant, and we continue in verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. David is now trying to get out of the mess that he's found himself in. So he gets Uriah home from the battlefield. He brings him home as if it's a a messenger task of finding out how Joab is, how the, the men in the army are, and how the battle is going. But the ploy is that Uriah will go home. He will sleep with his wife. He will discover she is pregnant in a few days or weeks. And he will think the child is his and David can wash his hands completely. But Uriah doesn't play the game that David wants him to play. Because as he had left and after the gifts had been sent, Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master servants and did not go down to his house. Uriah wouldn't go. 
And the reason why he wouldn't go, we learned that he said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. The determination, the responsibility, the camaraderie that he has with those he serves with in the army and respect for the king. This is the character of Uriah, someone who was loyal, someone who was trustworthy, but someone who was the spoke thrown into the middle of David's ruling wheel. So David tries again. This time he invites Uriah and gets him drunk, thinking this is bound to loosen him up. He's bound to go home now, but he doesn't. He does exactly the same thing. He sleeps in the entrance with the rest of his master's servants. So David, that's it. No more ideas. We can't do this the way that he wanted. So Uriah, away you go back to the warfield. Away you go back to the battle and serve. But David sends a messenger to Joab because this isn't the end of David's plan. Instead of making things right in David's eyes, he now has to fix it the hard way. And he sends a messenger to Joab saying, Uriah the Hittite, put him at the front line in the fiercest battle and I will expect the news that will come. So Uriah is sent out. He is cannon fodder. He is put in the front line and yes, he is struck down. So Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. This was the message that was to go back. And the messenger wasn't to be surprised if David flared up in anger. It's almost starting to look as if it's stage managed. That David knows the news that is coming because it is the news that David wants. And the word comes that Uriah has been killed. David then, after a time of mourning for Bathsheba, takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And in David's eyes, it's all fine and it's all rosy. David seems to have gotten away with the sin that he has now covered up. But verse 27, right at the end of chapter 11, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Is that the same as us? We know what is right and what is wrong. Yes, we have to be taught the difference as children. I don't think anyone ever taught us to say no or to be determined to do our own thing. But yes, we are taught what is right, what is wrong. And when we do things that are wrong, are we quick to cover up? Thinking, I don't want my reputation to be ruined. I don't want people to think ill of me. And so we cover it up and we get away with it. But all too often we forget what the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The things that I have done, that I have covered up, the things that you have done and covered up 
the same lesson comes through. It displeases the Lord. God is displeased with our sin. And we learn this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the passage that was read for us as Nathan came to David. Nathan, the prophet, is God's communication with David. And Nathan comes with a story. He comes in and he says to David, there was a rich man, great in wealth, had many sheep and many cattle. He was lacking nothing. He had a good life. There was a poor man and all he had was one little ewe lamb. And he treated that ewe lamb as if it was one of the family. It was the family pet almost. They loved it. Whatever they did, it did. But a visitor, a traveler came one day and required a meal. And the rich man thinking, I'm not going to give one of my own sheep or cattle for this feast. So I'm going to take the little ewe lamb and serve it up. And as David hears this story, he is outraged. He wants justice And probably some of the most familiar words in the whole of the story of David. In verse 7 of chapter 12, 12, David burned with anger. In verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Words that sink David to the rock bottom once again of his life. He doesn't have time to respond because Nathan says, you are the man. And then Nathan goes straight into saying, well, this is what God says. There's no opportunity for David to retort or justify his actions, whether he wanted to or not. Nathan goes straight in. This is what it took. God to come in and break David so David would know the wrong that he had done. Nathan continues on how many blessings David has received from God, how God has been good to him, bringing him, restoring him. But he also says punishment will come. The sword will never depart from David's house. Calamity will be brought on the household. And what has been done in secret, that with Bathsheba, well, the punishment will be in daylight for the whole of the nation of Israel to see. But David's life is spared. The punishment, of course, is on the child that is born. And then, as we know later in 2 Samuel, David's family in turmoil. David's sin cost him. David's sin brought him to that point where he could do nothing else but turn to God and admit that he was and is a sinner. Well, what about our sin? I have to say, a wry smile came onto my face whenever I got the preaching schedule and I saw David and Bathsheba and my name beside it. And I thought, What on earth? But it's about sin. It doesn't matter what David had done. It's about the sin and his own heart. So as we look and as we understand the story of this, we must ask ourselves, what about our sin? And there are only two people who know about each individual sin we have. That is ourselves and God We all sin. Whether we like to convince ourselves otherwise, let's face it, we all sin. Sins of omission, sins of commission. The things we don't realize we're doing that are wrong, and then the things, the times that we actively choose to do something that is wrong. 
Sin is disobeying or not conforming to God's law in any way. A modernized version of what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. James 4 verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We have been told clearly what is right, what is wrong. Not that it is rules and regulations that we must follow, but that in a loving relationship through Jesus Christ, we will desire to do what pleases our Heavenly Father. But we still get it wrong. Even though we know the restoration that we receive each time for the forgiveness of our sins, we still slip, we still fall. That is sin. Sin is serious business. We must treat it and take it seriously. As with David, God is displeased with our sin, our rebellion against him. He doesn't like it. We must take it seriously. But we have a God with a salvation plan. And as we understand and try and think of what sin is and what our sins are, there are three things we need to understand about God and that salvation plan. The first is that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Satan, the evil one, death has no more hold on us. As we come in living faith, repenting and trusting in Christ alone, the sin that is on my life is transmitted to Christ. He bears the punishment so that I may go free. And nothing will ever take me away from that. God keeps me. God keeps us so that nothing will take us away. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the influences of sin. You don't have to go far into this world to realize sin is everywhere. And more and more in subtle ways as the evil one tries to trick us and trap us. But each day we are being saved from sin that is all around us. It's influences. It's attractions. And there are times we do not even know what God has saved us from as the day has finished. But he is active. He is at work and he is saying, I am saving you today from the influences of sin. And finally, we will be saved. We will be saved on that day when Christ will come again. That's how sin is dealt with. Period. When we will be taken and we will be brought into those heavenly realms. Perfect. Presented before our Father's throne. Before him and in his glory. That is when salvation will be complete. When we are brought into those heavenly realms. Romans 8 verses 35 to 39 are a great encouragement for us as we think of how we deal with our sin. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the confidence that we have when we confess our sins and understand that Christ takes the penalty for it. That is why we can come with the confidence and know that we will be kept because nothing will separate us 
from the love of Christ. Nothing. Nothing. So how do we live it? How do we take what this word says and how do we live it so that it's real within us, that we no longer have the guilt, the fear, and the shame of our sin, but live each day for Christ? Well, some would say now we have a free pass, that we can go and do whatever we want because nothing will ever take us away from God. Well, no, certainly not. Romans 6, verses 1 to 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Sin is sin. Because we have been saved from its penalty does not mean we can continue doing it because as we have learned in the life of David, it displeases God. So we must not choose to sin. Yes, its influences will come, but we must determine in our minds, I must determine in my mind that I will not fall into sin, commission or omission, but I will remain forthright for my God. See, David kept going deeper into sin. He kept trying to cover his tracks. He kept trying to make it right in his way without openly confessing his sin before God and letting God do his salvation work in him. David, even though he was in great depth in sin, was still restored, and so can we be restored. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it. He sent his son into the world that through him the world might be saved. John 3 and verse 17. God didn't come through Christ to say there is absolutely no hope. He says, the hope is mine. Come, come and know the forgiveness, the acceptance and know the blessing of being my child. Keith Getty, in one of the modern hymns that he has penned, uh, we certainly sing it quite a bit in union at our times of worship. God of grace, amazing wonder, Irresistible and free, oh, the miracle of mercy, Jesus reaches down to me. God of grace, I stand in wonder. As my God restores my soul, his own blood has paid my ransom. Awesome cost to make me whole. That's what it is. God is a God of grace. He says, you do not deserve it, but I am giving it to you. The challenge for me, as I respond to this word, is I must search myself and know what is wrong in my life so that I can be and continue on that path that I have been called to. And as I have that challenge facing me, so I challenge you to let it face you. God will freely accept us. No matter what we've done, no matter how we've tried to hide it up, He will accept us. He will receive us. And the greatest joy of knowing that acceptance will be ours when we come to him. It won't be the easiest job we ever have to do. But it's the job that we must do if we desire to be serious about our faith, serious about our God, serious about our family of believers as we gather here. Will you take sin seriously? Will you let 
yourself be told you are the man or you are the woman who needs to sort it out because God will freely take us. Let's pray.